I don't want to be a martyr. Nor I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. All right, we're going back to Scotland. We like to go to Scotland, y'all. Don't ask me what that was or where that came from. I am not going to try and recap all of the political situation that goes on in Scotland in the 17th century. It's it's just too much. I can't, again, English authority and governmental structure is just saying that it's weird to me, not just because I'm an American, but just simply because of the, even the modern, as I smack my microphone around, sorry about that, even with the modern structures and the history and the way it comes together and what's independent, but what's dependent, it's just, it's just weird. It's just weird, and I'm not going to try to explain it or make sense of it. Just remember that you have a quasi-Scottish independence movement in the form of Scottish Presbyterianism. They are going against English uh, Episcopalianism, Anglicanism. Excuse me. And part of that is because it's a Scottish thing to do, and part of that is also because it is a religious thing to do. Now, once again, we've mentioned before how you're starting to see changes in the French understanding, Enlightenment ideas are taking hold. However, English understanding is not necessarily really changing. So, you have throughout the 17th century this English push to reclaim Scotland as some sort of Anglican foothold. You want the Church of England throughout the entirety of the realm, and since that realm now includes Scotland, whether they like it or not, by hook or by crook here, you are coming in. Now, all of that to tell you about the martyrdom of Donald Cargill. <laughs> Doesn't seem like a very Scottish name, does it? You know, you know, it should be like Mick Cargill or something. I don't know. Now, this won't be a terribly long one, but there is an important aspect of this that I want to point out to you. Donald Cargill is a Scottish covenanting preacher. He was educated at Aberdeen and St. Andrews and was ordained in 1655. Now, he didn't really have a whole lot of trouble after that. He was, you know, a good quality guy. Seems like people liked him. But he begins having trouble in 1662. Remember, also, 1655 would be no monarchy during that period. So 1662, he refuses to celebrate the restoration of the monarchy. He is called to the Privy Council, which, remember, the Privy Council is basically the way— you'd have to think of that like the cabinet of the English monarchical monarchical system. So there you go. So he's called summoned by the Privy Council. He refuses. <laughs> I didn't know that was an option to be like, nah, I'm, I'm good, yo. I, I, don't, I don't feel like showing up to argue with you. So he's exiled, basically sent north, and he is denied his benefice, which means he is no longer to receive tax that is collected in his parish. He is no longer provided an income, so he just becomes what, what's known as a field preacher and continually travel around Scotland and England, preaching to crowds wherever he could draw them. And what's fascinating is there's several of these field preachers during this time period. Many of them end up dead, just so you know. And they would. They would roll into town, get a crowd together, 
preach the gospel, proclaim truth, and then run like their rear ends were on fire before the soldiers could catch up to them and kill them. I mean, it's just it's just a weird world, especially when you think about Protestant England. This is not like, you know, the Spanish Inquisition yeah, from, you know, Mel Brooks fame. This is this is supposedly a Protestant kingdom persecuting other Protestants disregarding the public preaching. Remember, it's one of the weird little things about England is that it's kind of royalist first and religious second. So Cargill keeps this up for a while, actually. He is finally declared an outlaw in 1674. Now, that's already been a while where he's been on people's radar. He's going to continue to be on people's radar. He doesn't take off yet. Continues in Scotland being a field preacher, proclaiming the gospel. And when I talk about there's a, like a little bit of Presbyterian pride and there's also a little bit of Scottish independence in this, these ideas kind of run together in Cargill, who was actually wounded in battle against English armed forces in 1679. And figures at that point, it's probably best to get out of Dodge for a little while. Ends up going to that bastion of religious freedom. If you are in the 16th or 17th century and you need to get away from persecution, you go to, that's right, you go to the Netherlands. Doesn't stay long, returns to Scotland a year later in 1680 and drafts what's known as the Queen's Ferry Paper. That's the uh, the name of the uh, town there. And the Queen's Ferry Paper calls for, you know, like this, the over, to over, calls for, if you're going to sign this, to that you are agreeing to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and pledge that we shall to our power relieve the church and subjects of this kingdom of that opposition that hath been exercised upon their consciences, civil rights and liberties, that men may serve him holily, talking about God, without fear and possess their civil rights in quietness without disturbance. Now, this is a fascinating argument why I wanted to do this. We've seen with the English martyrs prior that they're unwilling to, uh, un to, to um, my brain just stopped, they're unwilling to surrender their religious convictions. However, they haven't been so willing as to declare necessarily, not more, all of them anyway, the monarchy the problem. Cargill is part of a group that is pointing that out in in many of his writings. After the, there's the Queen's Ferry Paper, which by the way, um, this falls into government's hands, and they find out where he is, and he's got to run for his life again. Dude's been basically on the run at this point for the better part of a decade. Um, but Cargill is declaring that the English government used to be good. Well, I guess in this case, this would be the British government, right? Yeah, the United Kingdom. So the British government used to be good. The monarchy used to be holy and righteous, but it isn't any longer. And because it is no longer holy and righteous, it is not to be obeyed, and it is not to be tolerated that Christians have a duty to resist this evil government. That would have been a fascinating argument to Christians in the Middle Ages or you know either the high middle ages or the early middle ages when the papacy was viewed to be an illegitimate force but the church was still viewed to be something to be reformed all the way up until luther's time basically what you're seeing is the ideals of enlightenment thinking which again remember the enlightenment is based on reformation thinking 
these which which is based on humanism humanist thinking good humanism not modern humanism and so you're seeing these ideas being applied to not just secular governments but to religious understandings we have a religious duty to god we have rights granted from him and when you are usurping those rights you are warring against god by warring against his people and therefore we not only have the uh, right but we have the obligation and duty to resist to fight for what would be a God-honoring system in government. That's that's the this is part of the beginnings of this argument in what you're seeing in a guy like Cargill. And I'm not sure Cargill would make that argument to that extent, but this is the root of that argument that you will see later on in the um, in the Declaration of Independence and, th and things like that. You will see these ideas come to full flower. Now, there's not a dramatic story. Well, sort of depends on how you look at it. Um, Cargill is either hanged or beheaded by the British, well, I guess this would be the English now, I guess, in 1681. And the reason I say we don't really know is the, the secular sources like to point out that he was just hanged and they don't have any details. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs tells you that he was beheaded and it took him a while because the uh, the executioner was nervous and therefore he missed and had to strike again. But that wasn't a clean shot and he missed, so he had to strike again. And that's just like, because beheadings are supposed to be quick and easy. Uh, uh, this one wasn't but Cargill's last words you're gonna like this the Lord knows I go on this ladder with less fear and perturbation of mind than I ever entered the pulpit to preach if you didn't catch that he's less worried about his execution than he ever was about proclaiming the gospel in his preaching he's much more at peace in his execution than he ever was standing in the place of speaking on behalf of God to his people. And by the way, Christian, that's that's a two-folded uh, lesson to learn there. Number one, it's a good way to view Christian proclamation and learning, that it's something we should take seriously and be concerned about. And two, it's a testimony to the peace that God gives his people. It is a testimony that when you have stood in the right and you have kept the faith and you have persevered unto death, that God will strengthen you and you will endure whatever it is that may come to pass. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.